0: Thank you guys so much. Let's give him a hand. Well, yeah, I want to just um, plug Ecuador, too. Uh, We're all about church planting, uh, Eastside Church and Ecuador and North Africa. And I've had the privilege of going to Ecuador at least once or twice a year now, and that's kind of built into my job description. And so um, we encourage you to go. Spots are filling up for the trip in February. It couldn't be a better time to go on the equator than February when you live in Madison, right? You with me? So that timing is is not accidental for your sake. Um, and uh, so the spots are filling up already, so you'll hear more about that. But I encourage you to go um, gain a heart for God's vision. And, man, it's just so important for us to see things the way God sees them. Um, He's not a God of Madison or the United States. He's a God of every tribe, tongue, and nation. And we want to be a part of seeing the gospel reach every corner of the world. And so that's why we're all about church planting. Um, We are going to transition now to the book of Jude. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and grab it. And Jackie, why don't you come up? Uh, She's going to read. But uh, the book of Jude is at the very end of your Bible. And right before the book of Revelation— And it's a short book. It's probably only one page in your Bible. If you don't have a Bible, feel free to take your smartphone and download an app right now. It's super easy. Uh, I want you to know how to navigate your Bible and to see it with your own eyes. It'll be on the screen as well, but just to have it in your hands, I think, is valuable. And so we're in Jude, second to last book of the Bible. And Jackie's going to read for us verses 1 through 16.
1: It's a reading from the letter of Jude. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. To those who have been called, who are loved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, mercy, peace, and love be yours in abundance. Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt compelled to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's holy people. For certain individuals whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They are ungodly people who pervert the grace of our Lord God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ our only sovereign uh, sovereign and lord. Though you already know this, I want to remind you that the Lord at one time delivered his people out of Egypt, but later destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not keep their positions of authority but abandoned their proper dwelling, these he has kept in darkness bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. In a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. They serve as an example to those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. In the very same way, on the strength of their dreams, these ungodly people pollute their own bodies, reject authority, and heap abuse on celestial beings. But even the archangel Michael when he was disputing with the devil about the body of Moses, did not himself dare to condemn him for slander, but said, The Lord rebuke you. Yet these people slander whatever they do not understand, and the very things they do do understand by instinct, as irrational animals do, will destroy them. Woe to them! They have taken the way of Cain. They have rushed for profit into Balaam's error. They have been destroyed in Korah's rebellion." These people are blemishes at your love feasts, eating with you without the slightest qualm, shepherds who feed only themselves. They are clouds without rain, blown along by the wind, autumn trees without fruit and uprooted, twice dead. They are wild waves of the sea, foaming up shame, wandering stars for whom blackest darkness has been reserved forever. Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about them. See, the Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones to judge everyone and to convict all of them of their ungodly acts they have committed in their ungodliness and all of the defiant words ungodly sinners have spoken against them. These people are grumblers and fault finders. They follow their own evil desires and they boast about themselves and flatter others for their own advantage.
0: This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would help us now, that we would come underneath the authority of your word with ears to hear, eyes to see, a soft heart to receive, and may you empower us by your spirit, working through your word to be changed um, into the image of your son this morning, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, let's dive into this. There's some challenging things here, right? Some language here that might be a little foreign to us. But I want to start and just ask what what is going on here? What's What's the context historically? And if we look at verse three, I think it's important to see the language here in these opening verses to give a flavor of what the book of Jude is all about. Okay? So look at verse three with me. He says, Beloved, I was, although I was very eager. So he says, He was eager. We got past tense here, right? He was eager to write about our common salvation. See that there? I think what he means is like basic doctrine, orthodox teaching, things we all agree upon in the faith as they've been taught by him and the other apostles like Peter and John and James and Paul. He says here, verse 3, he was going to do that, but... He says, something else was necessary. See that there in verse 3? I was very eager to write about a of salvation, but I found it necessary. Now, the word necessary, that implies a sense of urgency, right? Like, I've got to do this. I'm compelled to do this. It's necessary that I do this. That's like, okay, we're we're dialed in. We're thinking about this, and we've got to do something, okay? Like, if you were diagnosed with cancer, you don't want your doctor coming in being kind of wishy-washy. Like, oh, you can do this, oh, you can do this, oh, you can do this. No, you you want him to come in and be like, no, it's necessary, it's definitively necessary for us to take this course of action for the sake of you having a chance to be healed from cancer. There's a lot at stake if you have cancer, life or death, right? Well, we're going to see in a bit there's a spiritual cancer that's creeping into the church to which Jude is writing. And as a spiritual doctor, Jude is making a definitive diagnosis and an action plan. Okay. Now Jude, he says in verse 3, he was going to write a different letter. But in lot of the situation, a different course of action was, what does he say? Necessary. It's kind of like if you're on an airplane and the, uh, the captain comes over the PA system and he says, Unfortunately, it is necessary. <coughs> necessary. For us to change our flight path due to some new information we've received. There is a massive thunderstorm in our flight path. Unless all of you want what is currently inside your stomach to be outside of your stomach, we're going to change direction and we're going to land over here because of this new information. Right? And we're going to wait it out. See, when you get new information that's serious like that, sometimes a new direction is... Necessary, And that's the spirit of what Jude is doing in this letter. He's saying that based on new information that he has, he's going to land the plane of his letter in a different location than he originally planned. All right, you see that? So what is this new information that he's received? Well, let's look at it again, verse 3. Beloved, so he loves these people. That's, That's important to note. As a good father, as a good teacher, as a good leader, he says, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith. This is the thesis of the whole book. Contend for the faith. Hold fast to the faith. Stick with the faith. Stick with what you've been taught. Contend for the faith that was once, uh, that was once for all delivered to the saints. And then here's where things change a little bit. Verse 4. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality, and in doing so deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. So, did you catch what the new information is? Did you see verse 4? Look at it. He's saying. Number one in verse 4, it's the first thing we see for certain people. We have a people problem for certain people. And these people are saying things. They're communicating a false message. They're false teachers. And, and they're, they're sneaky. He said, the, the word he says uh, is they've crept in. It's not like they came waving a big sign saying, here I am, false teacher, ready to lead these people astray. That's not typically how it works. Usually it's subtle. It's a little more sneaky and subtle. And that's what's happening. So what are these people all about? Well, look at verse 3. Again, Jude wants them, in verse 3 he says, I want you to contend for the faith. Meaning hold fast to the truth that you've been taught about Jesus from the Apostle John, from the Apostle Paul, from Apostle Peter, and from myself. All these letters that we now have in our New Testament, everything they said about Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection, all that means for this new church, this Christian church that's living on mission in the world, hold fast to that. Hold fast to that. Don't waver. Don't veer away from that. This is orthodox teaching. So if it was necessary to implore these people to do that, right, like hold fast to it, if that was necessary, that probably means that these people who have crept in to the church are not contending for this true orthodox faith. faith. Does that make sense? And that's what Jude is getting at as he describes these people in more detail in verse 4. He breaks it down what these folks are all about. And there's four things in verse 4. He's very descriptive. Look at verse 4 with me. He says that, first of all, long ago they were designated for condemnation. And what he's referring to here is that there's ancient writings. The Old Testament or ancient Jewish literature wrote about this kind of situation in some sense. Jude is just connecting ancient writings that his Jewish audience would have been familiar with to make his point. And we're going to see that in a second. But he's just saying, remember, people like this— they're designated for condemnation. It's not going to last. God's judgment will find them. And then secondly, he says they're ungodly. Un- the word ungodly in the New Testament typically means a way of life. The way that they conduct themselves is clearly ungodly. Their, their way of life is not to be modeled. Well, let me explain that. Verse, uh, the third thing he says is their ungodliness looks like this. They pervert the grace of God into sensuality. See that in verse 4? What does that mean? It just means that they have a way of life that needs a theological justification. They have desires and they need to figure out a theological way or a theological excuse to permit those desires. It's like they they really enjoy sinning so they figured out a way for God to approve of their sensuality and they're trying to bring other people into it. Now, typically, the word sensuality in the Bible refers to some type of sexual sin. And we don't know exactly what Jude has in mind here, other than that it's probably that type of general heading. And so, to pervert the grace of God into sensuality probably means something like this. And you've heard me say this before, but it's, I think it's explicit in this text God likes to forgive, and I like to sin. So let's magnify the grace of God as the one who forgives and get on with our sinning. So God, I love this sin and I know you love to forgive. So I'm just going to give you an opportunity to show how awesome you are by forgiving my sin. So I'm just going to give you a great application, a great landing spot for forgiveness because we love you as a forgiving God. In some weird sense, that kind of sounds right. But then you're like, no, 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 that's not right at all. Right? You feel that? God likes to forgive, I like to sin, so let's just get on with our sinning. What did Paul write? Paul wrote in in Galatians, I'm sorry, in in, uh, Romans 6, 1, shall we go on sinning so that grace may abound? And he says in the strongest possible Greek phrase, may it never be. Like that's him saying, heck no, no way. Like we don't increase sinning so that grace may somehow abound. That's a perversion. No, what, what does Titus chapter two say? Titus chapter 2 says that the grace of God has a function. It's a teaching function. And it teaches us, if you really get it, if you really understand the grace of God, that's going to infect your heart in such a beautiful way that it teaches you, it instructs you, it shows you to say no to ungodliness. And so Jude is just saying here, hold fast to the truth. Look at Titus chapter 2. Look at Romans 6.1. What these guys are saying is not the truth. That's a perversion, what they're saying. And then fourthly, look at verse 4. Based on the way they live, they deny Jesus and Lord as Lord and Master of all. So living a life of sexual sin with a convenient uh, theological excuse is basically just saying, I'm not going to submit to Jesus' Lordship. And, and oftentimes these folks that have infiltrated this ancient church, they probably would sign off on a membership covenant. They probably would sign off on a theological statement of faith. But their way of life denied that they actually believed what they said they believed. It, so Judas is just saying, look at their way of life. There's ungodliness here all over the place. And they've perverted the grace of God. And what that means is they're not willing to submit to the lordship of Christ. And through that, they deny Jesus. They're essentially denying Jesus. So what what is Jude laying out here in verse 4? He's making a strong case. He's like, we got a problem here. And these kinds of people will destroy this church, he's saying. False teaching always destroys the church. And the, the writers of the New Testament hate false teaching. Just go read the book of Galatians. Paul is fired up about false teaching. And Jude joins him. Jude is ferocious for the purity of this church that he's writing to. And tragically, this still goes on today. Jesus promised that there would be false teachers. You see that in the Gospels. Paul talks to uh, the ancient church in Ephesus. And before he leaves them, he warns the elders of that church, there's going to be false teachers. He calls them wolves that are going to come in from the outside. You've got to be on guard. So this has always been normative in the church. And Jude is dealing with it too. And it's, it's, it's normative tragically in our world today. You see it with um, what's called prosperity theology. And that's this idea that if you just have enough faith, you'll be healthy and you'll be wealthy. That's a perversion. There's nowhere in the Bible that promises that. If you just love God, you'll be rich. Well, what does rich mean anyway? Rich is a relative term, right? Rich compared to who? Right? If you have cancer, if you just have enough faith, you'll be healed. You see what this is? This is a soft legalism. If you just do something then you can earn something through your effort. If you just try hard enough, God will reward you. But what is the gospel? The gospel is the opposite of that. You can never try hard enough. You can never, like, put God in your debt. The gospel is that you couldn't do it on your own. And so God had to come and do it for you. No credit to how awesome of a prayer you are. No credit to how awesome uh, uh, of a giver you are, how generous you are. No, we are failures compared to what God has done in and through Jesus. And so he comes down on our level. We don't climb up to his. He comes down on our level and he gives us a gift himself. You can't ever put God in your debt. And what is this theology? It's just an idolatry of comfort. It's just an idolatry of comfort. What health and wealth are just, man, us just trying to be as comfortable as we can in this life. There's nothing wrong with that. But if you make that your ultimate aim and you create a whole theology to make that the ultimate thing, it's just idolatry. It's just idolatry. We just want to use God to get what we want. So we'll get a theological justification for the health that we want and the finances that we want. Reject this theology. It's all over the world. It's all over in Ecuador. It's all over in our culture. Just turn on the TV. It's all over Africa. It's sick and it's wrong and it destroys people and it destroys churches. You see this in, in also uh, in the realm of sexuality, in modern discussions of sex, probably very similar to what is going on in Jude's day. See, our sexual dysfunctions is nothing new in our culture today. It's nothing new. Jude dealt with it. It's all over the Old Testament. These problems have been with us since the dawn of time. And the Bible speaks to sex that glorifies God, and it speaks to sex that tragically dishonors God and others. And the Bible says clearly that the sex that glorifies God is a man and a woman in the context of marriage, and that's it. And that's it. That's all the Bible gives us. This is the pathway that God has created for human flourishing. The really sad thing today is that there are teachers that say that they're Christians, and their influence is expanded exponentially through the power of the Internet, that say that that's not true. And there's lots of theological justifications that are created to say something different. And they align themselves with these false teachers of Jude's day. In Jude's day, they were worshiping sensuality and these teachers do the same. They teach the opposite of what the Bible says and gives people the impression that if you just desire something, that means that God must have smiled upon that desire and that's False. Ultimately, God's word is what governs our desires. So don't listen to those teachers. Don't listen to those teachers. But why? Why not listen to those teachers? Like Jude's first audience could have very well asked him that. Like, why should we not listen to, I mean, their message sounds good, feels good. Why not? Those teachers that pervert a Christian understanding of money. money uh, those teachers that pervert a Christian understanding of sex. And friends, it's not just money and sex. I mean, false teaching, there's a long list, right? Teachers that say they love Jesus and are never willing to engage with the poor. People that say they love Jesus and never practice church discipline. Teachers that say they love Jesus teach a false gospel of no physical resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Teachers that say they love Jesus and teach that... Jesus isn't really going to return. It's just a myth. Teachers that say they love Jesus and, and they teach this happens right now, uh, that, that hell doesn't exist. Teachers that say that the cross didn't really express the wrath of God. The Teachers that say they love Jesus and seem to reject the Old Testament as useful for Christians today. Why reject these teachers? Well, Jude gives a strong answer. Jude gives a really strong answer. And it's not super comfortable for us. But just because it's uncomfortable doesn't mean it's not biblical, okay? And the answer that he gives is the reason why you shouldn't listen to those teachers is because the judgment of God awaits them. The judgment of God awaits them. The wrath of God awaits them. And verses 5 through 16, he just lays out, his case, why this church should reject these false teachers and hold fast, contend for the truth. Don't waver, don't waver. Don't go this new direction. This new direction is false and it will destroy this church. Stick with Paul and John and Peter and myself. And what Jude does in these remaining verses is essentially a summary would be this. Look to the lessons of the past to inform and warn you about the future. Let me say that again. Look to the lessons of the past to inform and warn you about the future. So let me illustrate this. In my lifetime, or as an adult, I've made a lot of bonehead moves with money, okay? Financial mistakes. And I look to the past And remember those lessons well. So there's a big one that that comes to mind. So in uh, 2007, we were living in Albuquerque, and I was a pastor at a church down there. And we were renting a house at the time, and so we decided that we wanted to buy a house. We didn't really know what the future held for us, so we're like, eh, might as well buy a house. Because it was a great time, or so we thought, in 2007 to buy a house. The numbers were great. Thirteen percent a year, the real estate market was going up. That's a good investment. You can get thirteen percent return on your money, right? Stan, that's a good investment, right? Yeah, thirteen. I mean, I'm no finance guy, but I can do that math, right? Thirteen uh, percent a year, it's good. And so, man, we didn't have any money for a down payment, but with that kind of math, thirteen percent a year, who cares, right? And so, we got a mortgage. First mortgage, not a great interest rate, but not horrible. But then we got a second mortgage at a worse interest rate because we didn't have any money to put down. But who cares, right? Because the the financial picture is just going like this. So get in now. Well, a lot of you probably can predict what I'm about to say. It was just a month or two later when the financial sky fell and 2008 happened. And... um, Along with the financial sky falling, so did the value of our home. It fell quickly. And then 2010 came, and we felt this deep call to want to move to Madison, Wisconsin. Well, problem, it's hard to move when you're $30,000 upside down on your house. So what do we learn as I look back on my financial past, what did I learn? Well, I learned that I'm not going to ever buy a house again with zero down. Right? That was a harsh lesson that we learned. God provided, and it, it's all fine. But, man, I'm never going to do that again. We're never going to do that I wouldn't advise anybody to ever do that again. Me or anybody else. Kids, listen. you got to have money down. Okay? <laughs> Don't buy a house with zero down. The financial future is not guaranteed. Okay? Look to the lessons of the past to inform and warn you about the future, right? I learned a lesson, moving into the future, I've learned that lesson, I'm going to do something different. And Jude is doing the exact same thing here in 5 through 16, okay, with this original audience. And instead of asking them to look back on their financial past, he's asking them to look back on their faith past their religious past the 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 history of the old testament these are jewish people knew their bibles well at that time they had their old testament that was their bible and they knew it very well and he's drawing upon these examples from their faith past to teach them to do something different as they move into the present okay And when when they look back, what they learn is that God's judgment is a fearful thing and false teachers always feel, eventually, the wrath of God in judgment. And so he's saying, look back with careful reflection. Look back with careful reflection. And he's rattling off all these examples in 5 through 16 to make his case. Look to the past for the sake of your future. Look to the past for the sake of your future. Now let's just walk through this, okay? Verse 5. I want to remind you. There it is. It's like, you guys know this. You know your Bibles. Let me remind you, lest you forgot. Although you once fully knew it, verse 5, that Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. First example of judgment from their past. Verse 6. And the angels who did not stay in their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, he is kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Second declaration of judgment. Verse 7, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal life. Third, pronouncement of a judgment from the Old Testament. Verse 8, now he turns to talk about these false teachers in their day. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the Archangel, so now he's going back again to the past, but when the Archangel, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. Verse ten, but these people blaspheme all that they do, do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them. That's another woe woe to somebody is just a pronouncement of judgment. Says it again, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's heir and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are just three uh, characters from the Old Testament that felt the wrath of God in some sense. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts, and they they feast with you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves. See, a shepherd should be thinking about his sheep, not about themselves. He's saying these are false shepherds. Don't follow where they lead shepherds feeding themselves waterless clouds swept along by winds fruitless trees in late autumn twice dead uprooted wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever man that's a statement of judgment the gloom of utter darkness Verse 14, it was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with 10,000 of his holy ones to execute, here's our word, judgment on all, and to convict all the ungodly of their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Hear that repeated word, ungodly? He's saying, Their way of life, their way of life, it's ungodly. Don't listen, don't listen. Verse 16, these are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loudmouth boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. Now, there's a lot in those verses, and we could preach a sermon on every one of those stories that he's referencing from the Old Testament. And it's also, he's referencing some extra, um, some extra biblical literature, some ancient Jewish literature that this original audience would have understood. We're not going to walk through this verse by verse. But I want to summarize. What's he getting at? Why is he going? There are all these examples. He's just saying, "Remember, false teaching does not go well for God's people." Verse five, they're destroyed. Verse six, even angels who teach falsely will find judgment. Verse seven, punishment of eternal fire. Verse eleven, woe to them. Verse thirteen, gloom of utter darkness. Verse fifteen, the Lord is coming to execute judgment. So all of this is to say, this is a warning. He loves, he told these people he already loved them. He said, beloved, he's saying, I love you so much, I can't not warn you. Just like a good father will warn his kids when you see them about to step off a cliff. He said, I love you too much to so let you step off that cliff. You've got to be warned. Don't do it. And he's saying, if you don't pay attention to these false teachers, you're going to step off a cliff theologically, and you're going to be wrapped up into the judgment that they will feel. And you don't have to. You don't have to go that way. Let me warn you, please hear my warning. That's what Jude is doing here. Learn from your past with what happens to false teachers and move into the present with a resolve to contend for the faith you've been taught by the founders of this early church. Let me close with this today. As I think about false teaching, it seems like oftentimes false teaching is predicated on a desire for immediate gratification. If you think about it like this, like um, oftentimes money, sex, these are driven by a desire for immediate gratification. I'm not going to wait by faith for God to fulfill me in his appointed ways. So I'm going to just fulfill myself as I see fit, when I see fit. I'm not willing to wait. I'm going to get mine now. False teaching always preys on our, the idols of our hearts. So in our culture, we worship sex. We worship money. And so it's no surprise that when false teaching comes in, it might involve some of those things. The wrath of God makes us sometimes feel uncomfortable. And so you've got false teachers that will come up and infiltrate the church and say, no, the wrath of God, that's not something that really, there wasn't any real wrath of God at the cross and God is just a God of love and he's not a God of justice. You don't need to worry about that. It, it meets us where we want to be most comfortable. But just because something might make you uncomfortable doesn't mean it's unbiblical. If you have a God that always makes you comfortable Maybe your God is yourself. Have you ever thought about that? God's judgment looms large in this text, and it may seem far away, but it's closer than we think. And and, and false teachers will get theirs. It's just a matter of time. And you don't want to be anywhere near them. When that goes down, you don't want to be aligned with them in any way. So what do we want to be aligned with? We want to be aligned with our Bibles. We want to draw near to those whose lives correspond to what the Bible teaches. And don't just look at what is said. Look at how it's lived, okay? Back to verse 4. He says "These, these, these teachers are ungodly. It wasn't just what they taught. That was bad. But he says, look at how they're living There's a pattern of unrepentant ungodliness. So Jesus said, if you have read the Gospels, you'll see that he says, you'll know a tree by its fruit. He warned his first followers about false teaching. And they said, well, how are we supposed to know? He said, look at their lives. And you know when a tree grows, sometimes it takes a little while for the fruit To come out, right? And it's the same way with false teachers. Sometimes it just takes a little while to observe and and, and to look. But but what 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 Jude's saying here, what Jesus is saying here, is look at the life. Don't just look at the words, look at the life. And so for us today, any person that 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 exalts themselves or presents themselves as a leader. Don't just look at the words, look at the life. Whether it's me or our elders or any other church that you go to or any other teacher, that your books you're reading or whatever, if what they say is important, but how they live might be just as important. And if there's a pattern, it's not perfection, but if there's a pattern, a consistent pattern of, of a lack of repentance over time, over time, steer clear, steer clear. You'll know a tree by its fruit. So we see in this text that the judgment of God looms large. And it's a fearful thing. And, and Jude spends many verses reminding his people that those who live lives of no repentance will experience the wrath of God. Those that lead God's people in a way that's contrary to God's word with no repentance will feel the wrath of God. So that's a big deal. There's a lot of examples here that are fearful. Don't trifle with God's wrath. Don't, don't, don't diminish it or, or dismiss it. It's not something that's just to brush off. The wrath of God awaits those who name the name of Jesus and lead his people in a way that's false. And this is serious business. But let's remember. Let's remember. For those who hold on to Jesus in repentant faith and trust in his word, there is no fear of judgment. There is no fear of judgment. We have a glorious substitute who stood in the way of God's wrath so that we don't have to. That's the best news in the world. You feel that this morning? The judgment of God fell on God himself in Jesus, in our place, in real history, 2,000 years ago in the Middle East. It's not a fairy tale. It's not a myth. It's a historical Fact, And if you come to Jesus in repentant trust in his work to bear the judgment of God in your place by dying for your sins and raising to life for your justification and defeating the penalty of sin, which is death, then fear doesn't have to rule our hearts anymore. The fear of God's wrath doesn't apply to you. God's wrath was absorbed in his son in your place. That's good news. That's good news. So false teachers, you can repent and return to the cross and know that God's judgment is not going to land on you anymore. False teachers, anybody else. And what remains after repentance is just love and trust and valuing God and his truth over all. And just wanting to be with him forever. So false teachers always let you down. Human teachers eventually are going to let you down somehow because we're sinners. But Jesus will never let you down. He's proven his love for us in the gospel He's demonstrated it. So come to him and know that judgment is far from you and then be willing to stand for this ancient faith, contend for this ancient faith that has stood the test of time and satisfies our hearts. Let's pray. Father, would you help us? Would you help us to draw near to you in your word, in your church, by the power of your spirit? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.